and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast. This week, we've got a special for you. We are starting a new type of episode, uh, which we're calling the Spotlight Episodes, which essentially focus on one or two topics, and we try and d- dive a little deeper into those topics, hopefully to get you a little more information on whatever it is we're talking about. Yeah, so there's no release notes in this episode at all. It's purely just the topic we're focusing on. And today's topic we're talking about is developing for Home Assistant. And joining us once again from last week is Aaron, who's also done some development for Home Assistant. Thank you very much for coming on for the very first Spotlight episode. Hey, thanks, guys. Great to be with you. So we thought you would be the perfect one to talk about developing for Home Assistant. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's something that, um, you know, I, I my story is probably um, similar to a lot of people in, in terms of, you know, whether I'd been a program bef- programmer before or not, I'd never done any sort of large scale open source projects. So yeah, I think it'd be fun to talk about, you know, how to, how do people get involved? I'm, I'm sure, you know, many, many people have ideas that they want to contribute and because of time or um, lacking experience, they feel like they're not a fit to contribute and hopefully we can bust that myth today. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And well, and one of the things too is it's also, Hey, you know, is it, Am I in over my head in such a large project or anything like that too, right? So, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you use to develop on Home Assistant? What are you running? Are you running Linux or Mac OS or anything? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I primarily do my development on a Mac. You know, Home Assistant developers and developers in general have all sorts of operating systems and environments they use. I, I do... I do tend to think that the people who are running either a Mac or some sort of Linux variant tend to be able to get up and run a little easier. It's certainly not to knock, you know, the Windows users and especially you know, the latest iterations of Windows and their uh, commitment to supporting open source tool chains. It definitely helps things uh, a lot better. But uh, yeah, I'm 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 a quintessential Mac user, and I tend to I tend to think that that you know having sort of a, a Unix system of some sort that you're working on makes development for this thing a little bit easier yeah absolutely i know i've i've done some very minor pull requests and i've used the vagrant images because i'm running windows at the moment so there's a a vagrant image and i believe there's a, a docker development image as well so if you are stuck on the windows system there are it's not ideal but there are ways to develop uh using unix on windows as well yeah good yeah so apart from just macOS, are you using Docker or anything to do your development or did you just have Python installed? Yeah, sure. So um, the traditional kind of, um, I guess, methods um, I, I use, I'm very old school. I use Vim as my text editor. Nice. I decided uh, about four years ago that after all these years and all these people talking about how wonderful it was, I, I was going to jump into it and it sucked and uh, it, it hurt my life for about a year. Um, <laughs> but uh, eventually I got my feet under me and um, have never looked back. So I'm a Vim user. Um, I just do all my all my development from the actual programming itself to the testing, to the deployment, to the pull request management, everything just within the terminal. I, I you know like to kind of keep things simplistic in that regard for me. So I do that. Um, as far as kind of the basic programming environment uh, for Python, I use uh, I use a concept uh, that's very common in the Python community um, in terms of virtual environments. It's not a full blown Docker environment where you've got a 
whole operating system set aside, you certainly can do that. When I'm doing my development, I tend to just set up a, a separate virtual environment for my Python, my Python packages, just so that, you know, if, as I'm messing around and installing dependencies and changing things, if I really mess something up, I can always blow away that virtual environment and, and my Mac continues to run. Right, right. Yeah, right. And from there, do you have like, uh, so would you have a whole home assistant instance running in a virtual environment so that you can spin up as you're making changes? I do. Yeah. So one of the one of the great parts about home assistant when you um, when you fork the project, and then for I guess for anybody who doesn't um, deal in GitHub that much, the the primary concept of contributing to a GitHub project or a GitHub hosted project is that you create. Uh, a fork of the repository, meaning you create your own decoupled copy, entire copy of the repository. And um, one of the best things I think about um, getting started with Home Assistant is that um, very early on, um, I assume it was Paulus, it could have been somebody else, but um, early on uh, inside the little script directory, when you download Home Assistant uh, source code, there's a script directory and there's a there's a multitude of scripts in there, but then there's this just very simple little setup script. Um, and as you run it, and I run it in a, that Python virtual environment, um, it creates and installs and downloads all the packages and dependencies that you would need to run a local home assistant. And you're absolutely right, Phil, because I one of the ways I like to do it, and I think this is fairly common, is I, I like to make sure that you know, I might make a change and I'm going to, I want to really restart my home assistant really quickly to, to see what the change does. And, um, so having, having a local copy of home assistant that, that is not my home copy, it doesn't have all of my production integrations configured. Um, just having something that I can quickly look at is, is crucial, I think, to make, making sure that development isn't right. a complete headache. That's interesting. So when you when you run a uh, local copy, it doesn't conflict with any of your other stuff. It, there's no kind of interaction between between those, unless unless you specifically configure it to do otherwise. That's right. Exactly right. I have a I have a really bare bones version of the configuration.yaml file that I keep to get uh, Home Assistant up and running again in a very bare bones fashion. And so the idea would be, let's say I'm working on Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm working on a uh, a change. I've mentioned Rain Machine before. Let's say I'm working on a change to the Rain Machine integration. Um, my configuration.yaml will have maybe 20 lines, maybe. Right. Um, and it'll ha- it'll have just the base, you know, Home Assistant section. It'll have the front end, the history, the logger, and then my Rain Machine configuration and that's it and i do it on purpose um just because one of the tenants i think not just of home assistant but of good development practices is as you're as you're doing something uh making a feature fixing a bug whatever you want to have as few dependencies or variables in the system as possible so that you know let's say i'm doing something with rain machine if if it's going wrong if something's breaking or failing i want to reliably be able to say that it is something in the rain machine component and not you know one of the other right, 50 right. components that i might have configured at the time yeah mm-hmm. definitely that that's cool so once you've got your environment set up and you started coding what, what's the general workflow that you would go through say you were to create a new component do you just go in and create a new component in home assistance library there or sorry in the home assistant directory for the component or would you have to start like your own little library to then have it implemented through uh, the python package manager or something like that 
Sure. Great question. Um, the, the principle that Paulus has set forth um, is that wherever possible, whenever possible, we ought to make sure that our integration code doesn't live in Home Assistant. And so as an example, let's say I want to create a component for a new type of thermostat mm-hmm. or a new, I should say, new thermostat platform. Rather than having all the code that interacts with the thermostat within Home Assistant itself, our sort of mandate is that, uh, exactly right, Phil, we should have a separate Python package or library that we create for interaction with that thermostat. And then the idea would be that Home Assistant would download and utilize that package. And we do that for a couple reasons. Number one, most obviously, uh, it keeps the Home Assistant code base uh, slimmer in terms of ensuring that it focuses only on Home Assistant-related activities. It doesn't need to know every single thing about that thermostat. It only needs to know about the things that it chooses to utilize for usage in Home Assistant. Um, the other really important, I guess, piece of this is is more of a, a philanthropic or a community aspect in that um, by creating a separate package, we are giving back to the community in a way. Um, so again, I go back to Rain Machine. Um, my my Python package, I, I don't know why I did this, but uh, I chose to name it after the German word for Rain Machine, which is a Reagan <laughs> machine. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I was feeling... I was feeling quirky one day and I guess it stuck. Um, <laughs> but what I like about this is, you know, at some point somebody's going to come along and say, I'd love to use Python to interact with a rain machine sprinkler controller. And I don't really care about home assistant. I just want to do my own thing. Now I, you know, I've given back to the community in such a way where that is now possible. Somebody doesn't have to figure out all of the quirks that I've figured out. They can use that package for their own purposes. So long story short, that's kind of the, the first sort of a piece of the workflow is creating a package. It doesn't always happen. Um, if there are, if there are integrations that are really lightweight or that take just a few lines of code, we may flex on this standard, but in general, um, creation of a package to interact with the device or the service is the first step. Um, and that can take a while because you want to do it in such a way that, it's well documented. It's tested. Um, you know, I tend to be the type. I, I don't want to put a library up on GitHub unless it's something that I I feel is worth downloading. So that that can take, you know, a, a good little bit to do that correctly. Um, once that's complete, the next step in the workflow is really to question how is this thing going to fit into Home Assistant, uh, and the the question there is: is this a component or is this a platform? And people hear us use those words. A lot. Um, a component is sort of a, a standalone thing. It doesn't really relate to anything else. It's an integration that uh, is unique enough and different enough that it warrants sort of its own uh, its own label as a component. Whereas a platform is an implementation of a component. So, for instance, um, if I'm creating you know another another type of sensor. Uh, one that pops to mind that I've created is the air visual sensor. Um, that's obviously just a, it's just a sensor or a set of sensors. And so we have a sensor component. Air visual for me is just an implementation of the sensor component. So we call that a, a platform versus, I don't know if, um, it, you know, let's say, let's pretend maybe the media player component did, didn't exist. And somebody came along and said, I want to create something that allows you to control a piece of media 
we would say, well, that doesn't fit uh, under any other existing component, so we should make a component for it. Um, there's other idiosyncrasies that fit into that, but that's sort of the, the second step is to figure out whether it's a, it's a platform or a component. And then really the third step is you just, you walk, you walk in and you start writing code and, um, we'll get into all the details here, but that's, that's sort of the step one, two, three that I follow package, figure out whether it's a component or platform, and then actually start doing the work in home assistant itself. Yeah. So I think one of the first things I remember when I first started using Home Assistant, there wasn't a component for the Harmony remote control. And when it was first coming out, there was a beta of it and the developer was working on it. And then they came out with the remote component. And that was, you know, the and that's how I first found out, oh, I see how everything links now. You create a remote component. And therefore, in the future, if something else comes along, like a, a Neo or something like that that wants to use a rem- that does the same thing as a Harmony remote would do, it can then has this base, you know, set of services and all that that can be used, and it keeps everything consistent along all those different types of remote controls or thermostats and media players. So yeah, it definitely makes sense. Bingo, that's exactly right. Yeah, there's a there's a good hierarchy there. So t- typically, if if I was to develop uh, if I was to develop a- anything, you know, how how would I go about deciding is uh, myself if it would be a platform or component, or or do I reach out to the community and say, hey, everybody, I'm working on this kind of thing. What what sure. how would it, how would it classify? Yeah, great question. So um, there are two two sort of ways that I think are useful there, um, and I'll approach it kind of from how I recall when I did my very first integration. Um, sort of what I did. Um, the first way, I think, a very simple way that anybody can can do is to go to the Home Assistant website, go to the components page. And just see if there's anything else that's remotely doing something similar to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So Rain Machine was my first integration. I'm going to use that a lot today just as an example. When I first decided that I wanted to integrate that into Home Assistant, I came to their website and I searched for a sprinkler controller and I didn't find anything. And so I assumed, okay, well, um, I wonder if anybody has done you know, a sprinkler control yet. And on a whim, I, I searched for Ratio Next. That's a, a very common sprinkler controller. Yep. And I noticed that at the time, there was one section on the components page, and it was a, it was the Ratio switch. So somebody had taken the switch component and had built the Ratio platform for that switch component. And now I was really new to Home Assistant. I, I had no clue whether I should pick a component, do a platform, whatever. And so I said, okay, just to get up and running here, I'm going to mimic what this individual did for Ratio. I'm going to just make a switch platform for Rain Machine. I'm going to make it really simple. It's going to control programs and zones, and each one of those will be switches, and that's it. Um, so kind of, the, I guess, the first route is you can just sort of look around and see if anybody else is doing something similar to what you're doing. And you're going to run into, I guess, one of three options. You're going to run into option A, where somebody has already built a component that does the thing you want to do, uh, over our, in a, as Phil said, in an overarching manner, where, again, let's say I want to build a media player. Well, okay, there's there's a media player component. There's a lot of different media player platforms. I can just sort of build along those lines. So that's option A. Option B is sort of what happened here where there isn't a sprinkler controller component per se. 
And just a quick aside, you know, it's something that has been batted around. We're still trying to figure out if there is enough similarity between all the various sprinkler controllers to justify a sprinkler controller component. But option B is to kind of come and say, okay, somebody has implemented uh, a, a platform that has a brand that's similar to mine, a sprinkler controller, a media player, whatever. Um, but there isn't an overarching component that that really defines that thing. And in the case of Ratio, it was just a switch. Yeah. So option B is, okay, I found a brand that I can mimic, even if it's just a switch or just a sensor, and I can get going in that direction. And then option C is sort of the probably the scariest, which is nobody's done anything like what you want to do. And you really don't know how to, to dig it into it. And um, Ryan, you had the exact right attitude, I think. In that case, ex- especially, that is where I would, I would, you know, even as a newcomer, I would feel comfortable going to the Discord channels, uh, going to the dev channel in particular, and just saying, hey, guys, I want to build an integration that does X, Y, Z. And I'm really trying to figure out how I should go about this. Is, do you guys see this as a component? Is this a platform? I, I did that very early on. And people in the in the dev forum in, in particular there are very helpful with that kind of question. So again, three options. Either you found something that fits really easily and you just you know follow the pattern. Option B, you find something that sort of mimics a brand and you can you can do what it's doing even if it doesn't seem to fit an overall hierarchy. Or C, you don't find anything and you just you just go and ask. Right. Yeah, right. That makes sense. So once you've created your component or your, your code all done, what's your next step in the flow? Do you have to do any special code like uh, styling or testing or linting for the code to be accepted? Sure. Great question. So um, once, once you do uh, your kind of your first round of your code, your integration, you think is roughly done, that's when you do enter, yeah, this testing and submission phase. And really, you know, there, there's sort of the way it should be done. And then there's the way it's often done. And they, they can coincide, I guess. But um, really, the what, what should happen next is you as the developer ought to take it upon yourself to do uh, some local testing first. And at a very simple end, <clears throat> this can just be, you know, running running your local home, home assistant and making sure that your integration works, right? You, you click switches, you view sensors, it seems to work, the log doesn't have any errors. That's sort of the, the simplest level of testing. You can also uh, get more into heavy-duty testing, uh, more, I guess, official testing. Um, one of the principles uh, that Paulus and, and the rest of the originating team put down uh, was the principle of doing localized testing first and not just testing of your integration, but basically running of the entire test suite that comes with Home Assistant to make sure that you didn't break anything with your code. This doesn't always happen uh, when you're doing just a new integration. Usually one of the rules that we have is that if you're if you're doing an integration let's say with a device that not everybody who has home assistant is going to have, usually we allow you to exclude your new code from the automated test suite. We just sort of have the attitude that, yeah, we're going to miss out on some automated tests with this thing, but we also don't want the automated tests failing for the 98% of home assistant users that don't have your integration. So yeah, right. one, of the, one of the instructions we have is, okay, if you've got a device or a service that others can't really talk to easily, you, it's okay to exclude exclude your your integration from the tests, uh, but regardless, um, there's a there's a tool a command line tool called Tox 
T-O-X. And this isn't sort of bundled when you do that, that setup, that setup script, that talks tool is included in your Python virtual environment. And running talks basically downloads a couple different versions of Python and it runs the entire test suite for all of Home Assistant uh, using those different versions of Python. So long story short, that's that's a great first step is to make sure when I'm done with my integration, whether my code actually has to be tested or not, just run the test suite. Make sure that you didn't break anything by what you did. And you'll you'll find out pretty quickly, you know, whether you broke something or not. Um, so that's usually step one. And I, I'm talking at kind of high levels here. Obviously, a newcomer, I'm leaving out a lot of detail here. I would say that anything I'm talking about, if you run into problems or don't know what to do next, come talk to us on the dev channel in the Home Assistant Discord. We'll be happy to kind of help move you along. So that's step one is testing. Just make sure quick test, nothing fails. The next step is the pull request process. And people have heard the term pull request, but for anybody who doesn't know what it is, you remember earlier on I said that the very first step in this whole thing is to make a fork of the Home Assistant repository that is your own. A pull request is... Uh, sort of a interaction in which you as the developer say, okay, Home Assistant Core, Home Assistant Project, uh, I've created something here. I want you all to review it for me. I want to submit it and I want you to review it for me for inclusion into the Home Assistant Core. And that pull request process has a lot of different details that we can get into here. But long story short, that's that's the process by which you will ensure that your code um is styled correctly, is running correctly. You're going to have a lot of back and forth with other members of the community where they will ask uh, questions about, hey, well, you know, why did you make this decision? Or, hey, you know, you're doing you're doing something here that could cause a break somewhere else. So make sure you remove this thing before we accept this. So you have and a lot these of- aren't bad things either. These are just, hey, like, yeah, this is cool, but just maybe do it this way, you know, offering suggestions here and there. Absolutely. Now, there are, there are some situations where, and this is always something I encourage people getting into the open source community to not, to not be discouraged by, but there are times where you as a newcomer uh, to either programming or to Python or to Home Assistant as a project, yeah. you're going to do something that is inconsistent with the rest of the project. And Paulus or somebody else is going to come along and just very directly tell you, hey, that isn't correct. You sh- don't do that. So a lot of people have that kind of interaction and it, it breaks their heart. It, it sort of crushes their spirit. And they think, oh, man, I, I, I'm embarrassed. I shouldn't have done that. What was I thinking, et cetera. Because it can be pretty intimidating, especially if you're new to being a programmer or, you know, this is just a hobby for you and this is your first pull request. You know, it's a bit intimidating to put yourself out there and then get rejected, I guess. Absolutely. You're right. I felt that way with my first one. I I had that exact reaction of, oh, my God, how how embarrassing. Like, I shouldn't have done this. You know, (laughs) all the irrational thoughts (laughs) start running through (laughs) your head. And what I'd encourage everybody with is, as best you can, and especially early on, just let it roll off your shoulders. Don't take it personally and just implement what is being asked of you. We we do have a mandate in our sort of community guidelines that we're never going to belittle anybody. We're never going to be uh, overtly a jerk to anybody. We're not going to insult anybody. But by the same token, um, we're also going to be pretty straightforward in what needs to happen so that something is included up to the standard, standards of this project. So I would say as best you can, remind yourself, hey, if I get hard feedback, don't take it personally. Uh, Do your best 
to implement the uh, implement the suggestions that are being given to you by people that have most likely a lot more experience uh, than you. And over time, the tone of it will change. You'll, you'll see the exact same suggestions or the exact same um, requests, and it won't strike you as harsh anymore. It'll just sort of, you know, be part of the flow. So that's what I encourage you. Don't don't feel embarrassed. You didn't do anything wrong. You don't need to be ashamed of anything. We all go through this process as we're learning. Just implement it and let's move forward. That'd be my suggestion. Yeah, yeah and, and almost like think of it as uh, as a pointer in the right direction, right? Rather than hey, you suck. It's not, it's not. <laughs> Absolutely. I think back to, you know, when I was first learning to drive a car, I drove a manual transmission. And I remember my instructor, it, you know, I had this tendency to always have my foot on the clutch. Uh, I don't know why. I just felt like I didn't want to run the risk of stalling my car for whatever reason. So I always had my foot on the clutch. And I'll never forget, um, my instructor wasn't harsh, but he was very direct and said, hey, get your foot off the clutch. And, yeah. you know, for a little bit there, I was, I was embarrassed that he had to tell me that. And, I realized later on, no, it just this guy, this guy knows, and I didn't know. And um, rather than dance around and, and waste a bunch of time trying to use language that didn't make me feel certain things, no, he's just telling me what I need to do because I didn't know. And I guess the sooner that you can get there in your own mind, the quicker this is going to become a fun experience and not an experience where you have to feel um, ashamed or anything like that. And I guess it's good to point out that a lot of the contributors to Home Assistant, they're not, you know, professional developers. You know, a lot of this is still a hobby to them. So it's not like you're, if you are starting out programming or there's lots of levels with people that are at different stages of their development status, I guess. And so it's available to all levels. If you're just starting out or if you're an expert Python programmer, you can make a pull request and the community will be there to help you. Absolutely. That's a wonderful point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a great example. I've been a developer for a long time. I am by no means the most talented programmer in this community. There are, there are legions of people who are better than I am. And it is interesting over time and having submitted a lot of things and having had a lot of discussions, I now, I used to, every time I used to get the notifications from GitHub that somebody had commented on my code, I had that sort of visceral reaction of, oh God, what is this going to be about it? What did I do wrong? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But now now it's changed. It, it's amazing. It's changed in my mind to be almost a, a joyous thing where, oh man, this is, I'm actually looking forward to getting the advice of people who are better than me. And so you're absolutely right, Phil. We're all, we're all in this together. We're trying to contribute to something together. Um, we're trying to do it in a way that helps everyone grow, doesn't crush their spirits, but also encourages them to get better at their craft. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the most powerful in, engagements through everything is, let's say, you know, a new person starts out contributing to this project. If you stick with it, eventually you're going to be, you know, one of the quote unquote established people, and then you will have an opportunity to mentor and help new people grow. And it's it just is kind of a beautiful cycle that, you know, you get to participate in. It's, it's kind of cool. Just, it, it's almost like you're, you're, you're improving yourself by, by helping out the community, right? So absolutely, absolutely. You get the, the community gets benefit, you get benefit. It teaches you a lot of, a lot of lessons. You know, if software development is at all in your, in your pursuits professionally, it will teach you you know, good practices. Um, th- there's so much benefit here. And I think we all have to get over that initial hurdle, a very natural hurdle, but a hurdle nonetheless of feeling embarrassed or feeling um, ashamed that we didn't know enough going in. Nah, 
I'm a big fan of just step, step into it, do the best you can, take the advice that's given to you and just just enjoy it for what it's worth. And over time, that feeling of embarrassment dies down to nothing. Yeah. So once you've done your pull request, what I know there's a few automated uh, tools that are installed on the Home Assistant repos. Can you explain a couple of those? Yeah, absolutely. So once you submit your pull request, there are multiple, they're, they're called checks. Um, GitHub calls them checks. These are multiple little bots, I guess, for lack of a better word, that, that run to make sure that you did the things that you should have done. So just a quick rundown of the different type of, of checks that people are going to run into, sort of starting from the simplest to the most complex. The, the very simplest check is uh, one called WIP, and that stands for work in progress. Very, very simple bot. If you submit a pull request, but you know it's not quite ready for anybody to review it, uh, if you put the, the acronym WIP in the title of your pull request, that enables that check. And it just is a signal to all of we reviewers that, hey, this is not really ready for review yet. Um, so it's a way to make sure that you're committing your code to GitHub, you're pushing stuff regularly, um, but you're just not ready for somebody to review it yet. So super simple one. Another simple one that everybody will go through, there's a um, there's something called a CLA bot. And CLA stands for Contributor License Agreement. We do make all of our contributors sign a license agreement. And the license agreement basically talks about you know how, how we are going to contribute to the community, the type of attitude we're going to have. It ensures that we are going to take ownership for the code that we write. You know, it's, it's not like a binding legal contract by any means, but it's just sort of the, the rules of engagement that we all agree we're going to abide by. So that, um, that check is in place. If, if for some reason you haven't signed one, you're going to get a little automated message that says, hey, before anybody starts reviewing your pull request, we just need you to sign this agreement. Not a big deal. Um, the third one that you're going to run into is one called Hound, like a dog, Hound. <laughs> and Hound's job is uh, linting style. So linting is um, really the idea of ensuring that the style of your code, meaning how it looks, is correct. For people that are getting into programming for the first time, um, it's really into it's it's important to understand it's not it's not good enough for the code to work. It also needs to follow the style guidelines so that we have consistent looking code that adheres to commonly accepted practices. Um, so for instance, um, we have a guideline in place that the typical line of Python can be no more than I think 79 or 80 characters long because we don't want just endless lines of code in somebody's files. So if you have a, a line of code that is over that 79 or 80 character mark, when you submit your pull request, Hound is going to pop up and quickly let you know, hey, on, on line 237, this line is way too long. You need to find a way to shorten that. So it's just a bunch of quick checks to make sure that your code looks uh, in such a way that it fits our style guidelines. So that's the third one. The fourth one that you're going to run into is coveralls. That is all about test coverage. So I mentioned automated tests earlier. Paulus has a, a, I don't know if it's a goal especially, but it's certainly something he promotes that uh, our, a project of our size ought to have at least 94% test coverage. And all that means is that the tests that we write, the automated tests that we create, ought to make sure that 94% of the entire code base 
is covered. The idea here is that the more of your code base is covered by automated tests, the more likely it is that you've written code that won't break at some point. You've ensured that 94% of your code has been tested. And I guess on the same token, if someone was to introduce another feature in the future and that broke your code, the test would then be in place to pick that up early. Exactly. Bingo. That's exactly right. So um, I mentioned earlier, you know, there is one exception when you have a, a device or a service that isn't readily available. We allow you to exclude that from uh, the test coverage. So um, a lot of times, you know, this this what you're looking for in this coveralls check is to make sure that you didn't introduce something exactly right. That you're not introducing something that broke a test somewhere. Obviously, if you break a test, that can mean one of two things. It can mean um, that you forgot to write a test for something. It could also mean that you introduced functionality that either um, either doesn't satisfy the rules of the test like it should or it exposed that the test is no longer valid and it's failing because it needs to have its logic updated to correspond to new logic in the code itself. So um, again, point here with this fourth one with coveralls is you just want to make sure that we are adhering to the mark and it will tell you whether you failed or succeeded. And you know, usually failures occur because somebody forgot to introduce a test and it dropped you know, the coverage level from 94 down to 93 or 92 or something. Yeah, right. Well, I was, I was going to ask, so if, if, if and when my test fails, what, what next? Is it, do I go back and redo it and resubmit and go up again? Or is there like a vetting process where, you know, somebody looks at it and goes, hey, here's why, or, or, or what's the deal there? Great question, Ryan. Um, it's in a community-run project like this, we do rely a lot on the former Meaning if you, if you break a test in your integration, you can certainly reach out and ask for help, but it, it's right. going to be on you to dig a little bit and find out why did that happen. Now, the, the good news with most of these checks is you can view details. There's a little details link to the right of them. In the coveralls instance, that clicking on the details link will take you to a coveralls page specific to your pull request. And it will show you for every single file in the Home Assistant project, what, what is changing with regards to the test coverage uh, for every single file? So let's say you're working on, you know, new component XYZ. You can go to new component XYZ and it, it should give you some information on um, what part of the code is no longer covered. So a great, um, a great example might be you, you worked on something that requires some tests. Um, and again, you know, whether your code requires tests or not can sometimes be a gut feeling or sometimes it may require a member of the community telling you, hey, you should write a test for this. But what you what you may end up finding is that your tests run perfectly. Right. It's just that you've introduced code that is not covered by a test. And if that drops the if that drops the overall percentage down, you just need to make sure you update your tests so that um, that new section of code is exercised, just meaning that it's tested properly. So, you know, you bring up a great point, Rohan. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff that we do rely on our contributors to, you know, check out. You can always, uh, in your own pull request, and I see a lot of people do this, that you can write comments in your pull request and you can say things like, hey, everyone, uh, I have no clue why this, you know, coverage is test is failing can somebody help me and somebody will pop in and, and give you a little bit more guidance but it, right. it's something we look okay. for people to instigate rather than waiting for it to just happen automatically 
So that's the fourth one, coveralls. And then the last check is probably the most complex. There is a, a check for a service called Travis. A lot of people may be familiar with it. Travis is a continuous integration uh, tool chain. And the purpose of Travis is every time, uh, every time you submit a pull request, uh, Travis does a lot of different stuff. It, it runs your code against multiple versions of Python to make sure that you didn't do something that works in, let's say, Python 3.7, but doesn't work in Python 3.5. It does some additional linting stuff that Hound doesn't cover. This is, this is probably the big one. If you can pass Travis, that means that your pull request has passed all of our really stringent guidelines and is looking pretty good to be included uh, in the core. So we, we could spend probably a whole episode talking about all that Travis does, but um, I would just say that you know that's the that's the one where um, if you if you do something that is good in one version of Python but not another version, or uh, you do something that uh, is maybe a little bit more complicated uh, linting wise than what Hound would pick up, you're going to find it there. So all of these different checks, um, last thing I'll mention here is when you look at the bottom of your pull request, you will see either a green check mark next to them or you're going to see a red X. And as a developer, anytime you see a red X, that's an indication that you, you need to take action with that particular check. Something has either failed or fallen apart that you need to look into. Once all the checks are green, that's not a guarantee that it's going to be merged immediately, uh, but that's a pretty good sign that you've done everything you need to do, uh, as far as we know, uh, to get your code merged into the core. Nice. And I believe there is rules in place that if it doesn't pass Travis, it can't physically be merged by anyone anyway. That that's right. To pass. right. There are, I, I think, you know, maybe Paulus or some, you know, some administrators might have that ability. Um, but yes, in general, you're exactly right, Phil. We, we, um, a lot of people ask, Hey, you know, I, I've submitted my pull request. How come it hasn't been merged yet? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the big ones is we need to make sure all those checks pass or I, we can guarantee, but for very special circumstances, it won't be merged into the core. Yeah. Which is fair enough. So you mentioned a few times now about the code style. And is there a way for a developer to check their code style without having to push it up to a pull request and get hound to hound the person about it, basically? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. And you you bring up something great, Phil, that as I think as a developer gets more confident in this whole process, they begin to look into these things themselves. They don't necessarily, like, for instance, I've done so many integrations now. I, I am pretty certain that unless I've really messed something up, that when I submit a pull request, all the checks are going to pass. It wasn't always that way. Early on, I, I sort of used the checks as my last line of defense, um, and I didn't really do a whole lot myself. Paulus, forgive me for that. Um, <laughs> but now you're, you're absolutely right. I, I have, over time, learned a tool chain that allows me to do a lot of this stuff myself. So I mentioned at the very beginning that I run a, a separate virtual environment that has my Python, it has my home assistant all in it. I also install a lot of other packages um, that mm -hmm. integrate with uh, Vim in my case, but they will integrate with, you know, most other code editors um, that allow me to see a lot of these things before I even submit the pull request. Um, so for instance, uh, there is a, there is a very common package called PyLint, P-Y-L-I, 
in T. And this will check a lot of those things that Hound checks for. Checks for um, the length of a typical line of code. It checks to make sure uh, your variables, you know, conform to the naming standards that we utilize. It checks a bunch of different things. There's another one called MyPy, M-Y-P-I, that checks for uh, typing. Um, there's this whole concept of typing within Python. It will check to make sure you've done that correctly. There's Flake 8, F-L-A-K-E, and then the number 8. Uh, that's like PyLint, but for Python 3 in particular. Um, so all these tools... Um, even without knowing what they do specifically, when they are all in place, one of the beautiful bits is that they will they will integrate likely into your text editor and tell you preemptively whether you've done something wrong. Um, so as an example, I'll just give you an example real quick. If I open up uh, my home assistant here, I'm working on uh, a particular uh, integration that I think will be useful here shortly. I am looking at my code, and in Vim, the left-hand side uh, is where I see little indications of, hey, you've done something wrong here. Um, so the very first one I look at, this particular this particular line is longer than 80 characters, and I see a little PyLint warning that says, uh, line too long, uh, 85 is greater than 80. So that's an indication to me that I need to go ahead and find a way to, to split up that line and make it a little shorter. There's another one uh, right below that where PyLint is telling me that I have failed to put in a, uh, a document string, a doc string describing what a function does. I, I mm -hmm. uh, defined the function and I went immediately into the code. I didn't stop and put in a line that says, hey, this function does XYZ. These are all part of the common standards, but what's nice is I, my, my text editor is telling me here what I'm missing. And so I know that if I fix all this before I ever submit my pull request, it's a lot more likely that those checks are truly going to be a last line of defense and not my only line of defense. Yeah, right. And so the code style that uh, Home Assistant is using, is that considered a, like, is it a standard Python standard of code writing that people can download or is it written in the home assistant developer document somewhere where people can see okay this is how i need to format my code or i can download this file to put it into my linter or my local editor for example great question um the good news is we do follow we don't do anything crazy that is outside um the normal standard so the normal standard is uh, something called PEP8. PEP, I forget exactly what PEP stands for, but it's a it's basically a, Py, a Python um, standard. And PEP8 is the style guide. It just sets rules for how the Python founders um, believe that developers should style their code so it looks good. And they talk about indentation, using tabs or using spaces, blank lines, how to import things in the correct order, Etc. Um, right. We follow the PEP eight standard, um, which is good. We we you know we say that if it's good enough for the Python founders, it's good enough for us. So if you if you Google for PEP eight, the very first link takes you to python.org. And I mean, this is some real bedtime reading here, but there is a whole <laughs> a whole slew of documentation here. If you are interested in what PEP eight outlines is in terms of good looking Python code. This will tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, right. So then if someone wants to put that into their, you know, text editor, I'm sure there'll be a plugin. They just search in their, you know, maybe in their Visual Studio code or Notepad plus plus. They just type in PEP eight and then they'll be able to get a syntax highlighter in their editor for them. 
Absolutely. I, I would say, you know, Vim, if you're a Vim user, you're, you're pretty, uh, you're pretty sadistic as it is. So it's going to take, <laughs> it's going to take some work to get all that into, um, into Vim. But I'm, you know, I'm looking, there's a, there's a great, um, plugin for Visual Studio Code called Python VS Code. And they have a whole section of this plugin that integrates PyLint, PEP8, Flake8, and MyPy, um, as well as several other useful things all individual studio code. So it will do a lot of this stuff for you. And that's, a, you know, that's another, I guess, suggestion I'd have is, as you know, whether you're new to software development, whether you're just new to home assistant, the more that you can get your tool chain to do all this stuff for you so that you can focus on the functionality of the thing that you want. You know, I, I think any of us who've been software developers, um, we've all experienced uh, the awful sensation of I, I was so excited to build my you know new thermostat integration, but here I am on hour five and I'm still yeah. trying to get my darn tool chain set up. <laughs> um, yes, right. That feels it's too terrible. real. Too real. It, it feels real. And some of that is you right. Like I think any of us who've been software developers kind of chuckle because newcomers need to experience that to understand how awful it is. But as much as you can get get the tools to do some of this stuff for you, so that you can focus on your thermostat and not on whether you know, your lines yeah. of code are too long. Yeah. No. And, and as with anything, it's, it's all about making your experience a little easier to deal with, right. Rather than like, like you said, you don't want to sit there and count every character on every line <laughs> say, Oh, you know what? I'm at 80 right now. Anything past the yeah. start again. Why don't you just automate that task? Right. That's it. No, no sadly, nobody, nobody's going to be impressed if you're sitting there making manually, making sure that your style <laughs> is correct. They want to see, they want to see you build cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If, if anything, it's just inefficient. So, so what happens after a pull request has been merged? Let's say you've just done your awesome new component and it's been merged. Does, does that mean it's hands off? For that developer, what happens if a, a bug arises in the future? Who's responsible for those sort of things? Great, great stuff. So um, once a pull request is merged, it is done. That's it. Uh, that particular pull request is in place. We've we've all agreed that it is now part of the dev branch of Home Assistant. Uh, there's multiple. We haven't gone into Git too much here, but there's the concept of multiple branches of code and the the dev. Uh, the dev branch is really the place where Paulus and the other core maintainers pull from for each release. So the idea is that anything that's merged into dev should have been sufficiently reviewed and checked enough such that it can be included in any release. So uh, if you get something merged into dev, congratulations, that's a huge step. If at some point before a release occurs, you find a bug, let's say, oh man, somebody, they merged it and technically it looked correct, but now that I'm running it in my own home assistant, I find, uh-oh, there's a bug. Um, I would just open a new pull request. Their pull requests are very inexpensive, so to speak. It's not like it's costing us money or all that much time to have a lot of pull requests. So the, the standard is just open up a new one and be very explicit. Say, hey, I, I merged in number one, two, three, four, five, and it, it all looked good, but I found a bug and I want to, I want to make sure that before one, two, three, four, five is released, that this bug fix is included as well. The, the, we on the maintenance on the, excuse me, on the review crew are pretty good about checking for that kind of thing. So we'll make sure that they get tied together such that they don't get released one without the other. Um, but just make sure you're explicit. If, if you find a bug, not a big deal. Don't need to feel bad about that. Just submit a new pull request, make sure it passes all your checks um, specifically mentioned that it's, you know, a fast turnaround to something that's already submitted, uh, and then 
we'll take care of you. Now, Phil, you asked a, a good question. How do, how do people know who does what? There is, there is one, I guess, one mechanism that, that we've tried to put in place that works okay. Um, there in the root of the Home Assistant code base, there is a file called Code Owners. And the goal here is to say, uh, for instance, the rain machine component that belongs to Aaron. So if if a bug uh, or a, a request gets tagged rain machine, it should automatically be assigned to me. It certainly, you know, isn't isn't uh, excluding anybody else from getting involved there. It's just a sort of an assumption that if a rain machine issue comes up, I'm going to be able to fix it quickest because I know the code base really well. We don't have a lot of the code ownership in place. We have a lot of, you know, um, specifics in terms of what components belong to the core group. Um, And then we have a a decent chunk of individual contributors, but it's, it's by no means exhaustive. So as a developer, uh, what we ask the community to do is uh, to just keep an eye as much as best you can keep an eye on the issues list in the GitHub page and on the forum, uh, the Home Assistant forum, try to keep an eye out for references to your stuff. Uh, so as, as an example, I have, a, I have a little reminder that reminds me once a week to go through both the issues list and the Home Assistant forum. And I just manually search for all of my items, rain machine, air visual, pollen, whatever. Uh, and if I see somebody's put in a bug or an issue then I just know that that's, it's my job now to engage with those individuals to assign that bug or that issue to myself and just to fix it as soon as I possibly can. Again, we're, a, we're an all-volunteer group here, so there's no you're not going to have some sort of manager hunting you down <laughs> to tell you to go fix stuff. Um, but I, I think it is important, like if you're going to be a contributor, um, understand that you're not just a contributor to get your stuff on the home assistant website. You're a contributor that's committing that if stuff arises, issues arise, you're going to be the one that takes the lead on, on getting them resolved. So it's a kind of a loose process, but um, you know, we, we trust everybody to be adults about it and to, you know, make sure that they're doing right by their contributions. I guess uh, the other two things that pop to mind, um, one other thing that pops to mind is I see a question in the dev channel of Discord a lot. Hey, I'm I'm done. When is my when is my stuff going to get merged? Like, what do I need to do to make sure my stuff gets reviewed or gets merged? I, I don't want to say that's annoying, but I, I want to kind of sort of set the stage for everybody. If if you submit something, uh, submit a pull request, somebody is going to get to it as soon as humanly possible. That's kind of the rule. Again, this you know being an all volunteer project. Other than Paulus himself, we all have day jobs that you know, we're working on, we got families, we got other commitments. So mm-hmm. um, we're going to, we're going to do the best we can to get it reviewed as soon as humanly possible. Um, in general, un- unless you're doing something that is critical to the function of home assistant itself, asking for an expedited review is usually not going to happen. And it's, it's no offense or no yeah. harshness towards anybody. We just don't have the time to do that. Is there a different process for something like a hotfix that needs to go out? Like, how, how do you determine when a hotfix would be released as opposed to just waiting for a bug to get fixed in the next Home Assistant release? It's a great question. So um, a lot of times what we will ask people to do is to mention that specifically uh, in their pull request. Hey, this is a hotfix. This needs to go out. And maybe even follow it up with a message on the dev channel in Discord. What, what ends up happening in that case is the issue will get assigned a milestone 
which is basically a way of saying that it will get assigned to a particular version, upcoming version. And that will, it's, it's highly likely Paulus and the team are really good about, you know, doing it anyway, but that it just helps them know, Hey, it's pretty critical that this particular item goes out in the next release. So I would just say, you know, you have a pull request, Hey, Hey community, um, I'm submitting a fix for whatever. And I think it's critical this goes out as soon as possible because X. I've seen a lot of people do that, and a lot of times the stuff gets turned around in a dot one or a dot two release very quickly. So again, nothing, nothing. We don't have like the the formal, you know, corporate chain here of like submitting uh, submitting tickets with SLA, you know, twenty four hour turnaround times or anything like that. Um, but just mentioning it is usually good enough. The other thing I would mention, um, a lot of people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, hey, this is all great. I, I, I still don't know if I'm ready to get involved with something here. One other area that I would implore the community to consider getting involved in, because it comes up a lot, is in documentation. Yep. Not, not a week goes by, not a release goes by where I and others don't see comments on the forum or on Reddit or whatever, um, you know, just decrying the state of home assistance documentation. And it's, it's not wrong. You know, we're, we're doing the best we can as volunteers. We're trying to put meaningful functionality out there. We're trying to document it correctly. We're not going to hit it every time as a, uh, as a user, there's a whole, um, there's a whole, I guess, sort of idea here that if you don't feel comfortable contributing to the code base, maybe consider contributing to the documentation. There's a whole other Home Assistant repository called homeassistant.github.io, and that is all the website. That is the entire website. So if you see a misspelling or you see a component documentation that is missing a critical piece of information and you can't believe that it's missing, uh, it, it, once you get used to the, the flow, the pull request flow and everything, it, it will take you, I guarantee you, 10 minutes maximum to submit a pull request that updates a critical section of the documentation. I can confirm that I have done a few documentation updates here and there and the process. I'm not very good with Python myself. I'm still very much learning Python, but I'm good with HTML. And if you're just starting out with Python and you're in the same boat as me, definitely make a contribution to the documentation. It's very easy and helps a lot of other users as well. Uh, that I'm glad I'm glad you said that, Phil. I was kind of doing a mic drop there. Of like, yeah, it's easy. <laughs> Trust my word. But I'm glad I'm glad you verified that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, again, I, I, we we take very seriously, you know, that sometimes home assistant uh, the experience requires a bit more of a power user than a lot of people want to be, and you know, there, there's always going to be some level of that in a project of this scale and this type, but. Um, we also take really seriously when people get frustrated by documentation missing or it's not clear. And that, you know, as a volunteer run project, that is a place where we need a lot of help. Another, you know, a, a, another piece I would add to this is I've heard a lot of people say, well, I'm not a developer. I don't know what the documentation should say. I just know it's missing. Well, if that's the case, then maybe you, user, you take the lead on at least starting the conversation and then you, I would encourage you to go to the discord channels or whatever and try and hunt up the answers say, Hey, you know, we're missing, we're missing a piece of documentation on, I don't know, home kit. And I don't know what it should say, but I know it's missing. Can, uh, if I offer to write it, will you all help me figure out the, the salient points to include? We will absolutely do that. We're just needing, we're needing more and more people 
just to take a little bit of ownership so that we can lift this whole thing up simultaneously rather than it being incumbent upon, you know, the 40 or 50 key members of the home assistant community to do everything. So, you know, everybody can take that for what it's worth. Um, it's certainly not a mandate, but it, it would be something that would help us achieve the goal that I think we're all going for. And there's an edit button on every page on the website. So if you're on the page, you just click that edit button and there you go. You That's can right. change the documentation then and there. Even better. Absolutely right. So, yeah, I think, you know, what I would leave everybody with is uh, just that this is this is a really gratifying experience. You know, being being a part of this, um, I think all the time about the different ways that people are in, involved in this community. Some people write code for it. Some people you know, like Frank produces all the, the Hassio add-ons and streams the process. People like Otto, who you had on previously, have wonderful side projects that contribute in a different way. There, there are guys like yourself who do podcasts. I mean, there's a million different ways you can be involved in this. We want a lot of involvement as a community. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully this has encouraged the people who were on the fence that, you know what, you can step into writing code for Home Assistant and it may not be perfect. It may take a little time, but you can do it. Or if that's just not, after hearing all this, if that's not your particular game, uh, there's a lot of different ways that you as a volunteer can in, be involved in a meaningful way that's going to provide value to others. So I just encourage everybody, you know, whatever your thing is, if it's your passion, if it fires you up in some way, find a way to get involved. And I guarantee, you know, your talents are, are going to be utilized in some way. I guarantee it. Even if it doesn't make it in, I'm sure you might inspire someone else to have an idea or something like that your feature request go oh that's actually cool but we could do it better we'll close this but thank you for the idea we're going to run with this in a different direction and that's fine too absolutely that's that's a great point and 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 it's a learning experience for you as well to be a part of you know if, if you don't do this as an everyday for like a job where you're working as a developer it might be an interesting experience for you to learn hey you know this is how a large project kind of gets pieced together with multiple contributors and so on, right? Yeah, that's right. That's a great point, Ryan. This is, you know, if you if you are interested at all in being in a in a professional software development environment, these principles of um, you know, Gitflow, doing pull requests, um, writing stylized code that meets standards, taking feedback that doesn't crush your spirit, that you you will learn to roll off your shoulders a little bit. <laughs> All of these lessons yeah. are are. I can tell you, you know, I I run a large software team in my professional life. We deal with this stuff every day of the week. So you're absolutely right, Rodan. This is this is useful in so many ways. I guess one other thing I'd, I'd throw in here, um, and this is a, a particular shout out to a particular individual. I don't know his name, but I know his GitHub handle. It's JC Connell. That may actually be his full name. He submitted a pull request uh, probably a month and a half or so ago about adding a sensor platform for surf related information. So I assume if you're a surfer, you need to know levels and all that type of stuff. Tides and all that. Yeah. Tides, yeah. So this this pull request is number one five. One three two, and I'd just like to give a shout out to him. I don't know if this was his very first contribution. I'm guessing it was a you know certainly one of his first. If you look at this pull request, you are going to see everything we talked about today. You're going to see all sorts of different checks. You're going to see 
there, in addition to JC, there's myself, there's Paulus, there's Martin, who's another member of the core team, giving him feedback. There's a lot of back and forth. There's multiple commits to this pull request over time based on our feedback. There's things like Hound getting involved to remind him about style stuff. There's adding tests. There's all sorts of good stuff. And um, what's so great is Martin said, looks good. Let's go ahead and merge this. And it's a great example of maybe at the very beginning, you know, he might've gotten discouraged with all of the feedback or whatever, but he kept pushing through this process. He kept taking feedback. We kept having conversations. And now if it's not his very first, it's certainly one of his first platforms is now going to be in the core, which is, is super exciting to see. And I think it can offer a insight to newcomers as to what this can really look like. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just going through that, uh, that PR now. That's uh, that's actually a really good example. It's just, it's a, it's a great, and, you know, I think, um, again, to kind of go back to the softer side of things, I was one of his first reviewers and I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to be straightforward with him. I didn't want to dance around my feedback, but I also wanted to make sure that, you know, I threw in a, you know, this is, this is the right direction, you know, keep going and, um, Martin and Paulus do similar things here. And so there is a really good mixture of, we're, we're going to motivate him. We're going to press him along, but we're also going to encourage him that he is on the right track. And I, I, again, I just keep offering that up uh, as an example to the people who might be afraid to contribute to something at, at this larger scale. Get in there, do your best, push hard, and we're going to be there to help you. Yeah. And, and, and a second time is going to be way easier too, once, once you've kind of gone through it once. Absolutely. That's exactly right. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's trivial now, but I, I I can speak to my own story. I now, whenever I step in to do a a feature or a bug fix or a whole new integration, um, it's wonderful that my mind can just fully focus on the task itself of what kind of functionality do I want to have? What sort of user experience I want to have? And I'm not sitting around going, oh man, I wonder if I'm going to fail a check and is Paula's going to be upset at me and all the old sort of feelings. (laughs) Yeah. That that does, you're right, Rohan. That sort of drains away over time. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for being our first guinea pig for the spotlight episodes if there's anyone listening that has a topic idea that you want us to focus on in the spotlight it doesn't have to be home assistant related it could be anything home automation related get in touch with us feedback at haspodcast.io that's great guys thank you again so much for having me it's always a, a pleasure to spend time with you and i appreciate that message i would absolutely agree that this is this is our project i think even paulus would say you know this is our project and there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of people to be involved in meaningful ways and you know i'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there i'm excited to see what comes yeah absolutely cheers guys cheers thanks guys thanks.